Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see a crowd today that is full of some visitors, some local, some uh, maybe from another town, some brothers from another place. We're excited to see you all and happy to have you with us as we worship this morning. And it is our number one goal to worship God, but we hope that you feel welcome and built up in the process and that and our goal will be accomplished for today. I'm excited to study through the second half of what we started last time I taught in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you want to turn with me there, that's where we're going to focus our time today. Ephesians chapter 4, and we stopped at verse 10 last time. And if you haven't been with us, in this book of Ephesians, we've basically got two parts. We've got a first three chapters of the book of Ephesians that deals with all the teaching and the doctrine. Basically a general encouragement to Christians. Do you realize who you are? Do you realize what you have been blessed with and called to and redeemed from and welcomed into? And because of that, in chapter 4 we started last time, the call to action. So there is no beautiful benefit without our own stake in this. And that's not just a bad thing. You know, sometimes people think, oh, I have something to do now. That, that should give you a sense of purpose. This should give you a sense of belonging and usefulness. Because when you're not active, you're not useful in really anything in life. But when you're active, you're useful for a cause. This should be an encouraging section of the letter for us, and hopefully a challenging section as well. If it's not challenging to you, and if it's not challenging to me, there's probably an issue with our heart that we're not seeing something that we are responsible to see. So may we have open minds to understand as we go through this. So the call to action he started with in the first verse was to walk worthy. And we talked a little bit about what that meant, and he gave us some specifics as to what does it mean to walk worthy. You know, with this great thing placed ahead of us that is our salvation and our membership in the heavenly kingdom, you would think it's some grandiose things. And he really listed some very simple tasks for us as Christians to walk humbly, to be patient, to be gentle, to be unified, and to build one another up. That's part of what it means to walk worthy. But that's not the whole gambit. And we talked more about those things, but maybe we didn't talk as much about the command itself to walk worthy. The command itself is a mindset. And sometimes we get caught up in, you know, I'm just, not, I'm never going to be worthy. And there's that, that self-criticism that he's not dealing with here. There's other passages that deal with self-criticalness or uh, needing to move on from the past. But here, it's a call to action that basically says, step up to the plate. Walk in a worthy way. It's a decision. It's a, it's a mindset that says, I'm determined to live up to what I've been called to. To live up to both him who called me. If the God of this universe is, is calling me, I should walk according to his will and not my own. And also to what he called me to. If he called me to the service of the work of his kingdom, I should be honored by that. He didn't call me to bad works, to evil things. You know, some religions around the world would ask you to do some things that are harmful to yourself and others. Our God is a good God. He does not request that of us. We are called to a great work, and we are called by a great one. So I hope that we, in the, in the deciding all these things that it does mean and about the specifics, we don't lose that we have a call to action. 
Now let's just get some momentum coming up from last time. We start in verse 1 saying, I therefore, Paul speaking, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So he gave us the call to action, how to be worthy, and then he gave us the principles of unity, how we walk together in that unity. Verse 7, but to each, of, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, speaking of Jesus, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And here's where we're getting into uh, where we left off last time. We talked about how Jesus descending into the lower parts of the earth could mean several things and probably does mean several things. He came down to earth from heaven. He also died and went down into the grave. He went down into the depths of the earth, which during that time they likely understood to be Hades. They went, Jesus came down in every sense of the word. But he, all, he who descended is also the, the one who ascended far above all the heavens. He's above the, the heavens, the earth, and he is actually seated at the right hand of the Father. He's at the top of the heavenly kingdom. So in every sense of the word, he has ascended. He is raised up. He is lifted up. He is powerful. Why? Did he ascend to the throne to then come back and then just knock out everybody who is against him? We will learn that all enemies will be put under his feet and have been put under his feet. But his purpose is not here spoken to simply just be a, a, a vindictive judge. His purpose in ascending is because he has to fill all things. We learn that without him, nothing was made that was made in, in John. We learn that he is part of the creative force of this universe as the Godhead. And he is the one who sustains and upholds all things. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, he upholds all things. Colossians 1 verse 17, in him all things hold together according to the ESV. You may have seen this before. I know some people have in here, but I like to throw it in any chance I had got. Because it's so exciting to see as science delves into the depths of the universe. This is a black hole in a whirlpool galaxy. I don't know how many light years away. They zoom in with a Hubble telescope and they see what looks to me to be a cross. You go down into the depths of our cellular uh, makeup. And you find this uh, cell adhesion molecule that literally what it does is it holds your body together and it's in the shape of a cross. I, I'm not going to say that's scripture, that's, that's exactly what that's pointing to. But we do know that in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. In him, all things consist. And so Jesus had to come and be raised from the dead that he might continue to fill all things when Jesus was crucified, it was no accident that the earth shook. That the very foundation of the ground they stood on quaked and shook. It's no accident that the sun that was in the middle of the day giving them light, that sun was darkened. Now I do not believe for a second that Jesus or the Godhead had a lapse in power. There was no gap in authority there. 
But I do believe it was a sign. It was a, it was a symbol. Do you realize what you're doing? You are crucifying the one who's upholding everything you see around you. The very sun that's lighting your earth, the very ground you're standing on is shaking as you are crucifying the Son of God. He didn't just go back and, and ascend, though, to fill all things and to uphold the earth, but he also did so in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4, to fill all things in the church. And that's the next kind of point he's going to start making. He himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. He told his disciples, I will not leave you or forsake you. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. He gave all these roles to give the saints, as was prayed this morning, that they would be equipped, that, we'd be, that they would be armored or given the tools to do the job. Do you have the tools to do the job? And if you don't have the tools, is it because you are willing to use them to pick them up? Or is it because you're not being given the tools? I believe God has given us through spiritual leadership, through his word, and we're going to talk in a minute how I do believe this is more focused on his word and the setup of the early church. But we as the body of Christ, not just the evangelist, not if there's an elder in a congregation, it is the work of the body to be doing the work of the church. He says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ. The word edify means to build up. We are to be doing the work as the members of the church to build one another up. It's not just the responsibility of these spiritual leaders in the church. It is our responsibility, and I cannot hammer that home enough. Now, I do believe in these verses right here, as he's talking about the equipping, it applies in multiple ways. But I do believe, based on what he's going to say next, he's talking about the early church. He's talking about how... Things needed to be set up miraculously, especially in the, in the early church, by giving apostles. The apostles delivered the word. Prophets helped teach the word and confirm the word. Some evangelists who were in the early church delivering the word, pastors and teachers. I believe a lot of this that he's talking about is miraculously. But I do also believe it applies today, even if uh, you can't completely justify it one way or another. And here's why. He says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, measure of the stature of the fullness in Christ. And that's from the, that verse is from the ESV. I, I used it there. Sometimes it's easier to read. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Here's why I believe this is especially talking about miraculous setup of the early church. This is the same kind of language that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8. In the context, he's talking about how they should desire certain gifts and how in chapter 12 they should use those gifts of different miraculous ability in the early church. Because they were still building the word. They did not have the full completed word of God yet. They didn't have this Bible all completely laid out. And so they needed special assistance from the Holy Spirit to make that happen. 
And as he's talking about uh, these prophecies, he then transitions and says, but you should first desire love. Love is the greatest because love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. There's going to be a time, he was saying, when the prophecies, the miraculous prophecies, those are going to stop. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, these apostles and different ones did not get the whole scripture revealed to them. Paul had to write a lot of the New Testament, but then there were other writers who read other pieces. They knew in part. They did not each have the complete knowledge of God's word. And they prophesied or taught in part. But when that which is perfect, that word perfect means complete, has come, then that which is part in part will be done away with. I believe that completeness is talking about the completed word of God. He goes on to say, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I believe in the context, he's talking about the need for the miraculous abilities to build up the church in its infancy. The church was in infant stage, and so it needed childish support. It needed childish or immature supports to uphold it. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to, no, face, to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Okay, back to Ephesians 4. Here's the same language he's using in Ephesians chapter 4. So that we may no longer be children. I do believe this applies to spiritual maturity as well. All these principles do apply. But we should not be children in our understanding of God's word. And God has made a plan and has given these early church supports, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the evangelists, all these things, because we don't have any excuse anymore. To be immature and not have the full knowledge of God's will. To not have the full foundation for what the church is built upon. And especially during this day and time, if you did not have the completed word revealed, it might be tough to not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There were ones who, have, right when the church was set up, that people criticized them just years later and said, man... Jesus isn't back yet, or Jesus already came. You missed him. There was your shot. There are people who are throwing these doctrines and these ideas around, and it could easily throw around a Christian in the early church. We talk about how, man, we wish we were a Christian in the early church, where they had all those miracles. You know why they had the miracles? It's because the church was undeveloped to where they may be able to be tossed around by these doctrines when I don't have the completed word how do I know what to follow completely all the time? So they needed that support. But now, we, don't, we have no excuse for being carried around by doctrines because we have the whole word. We don't have to have somebody come in here saying, hey, I have a prophecy, I have a teaching, uh, God gave it to me, and you need to listen to me, and that makes us waver. Well, is that true? We don't have to do that. Because the church is now in its state of maturity and God's uh, infinite plan to design a church and to support that church with the proper teachings and doctrine. He says these, these doctrines uh, and waves that, that carry uh, Christians around when they're unstable, they're from human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, have you ever thought about the fact that as you consider the work of the devil or the work of people in the world who are trying to deceive others 
oftentimes those people are themselves deceived. That's the nature of sin and the nature of the devil's work. So sometimes it's easy to say, you know what? These people are all just evil and deceitful. But we have to remember that they are themselves deceived. The difference between someone who is deceiving others and somebody who's teaching others truth is the correct knowledge. And that's why it's so important in the next verse that we should speak the truth in love. If we don't speak truth, it could be so easy to get off kilter and to be leading people in deceitful ways. I believe a lot of people who are deceiving others are not trying to do it. That's the nature of evil. That's why truth, when it's convoluted and my truth, your truth all the time, you can't have that and have God's ways because there is a specific pattern to follow. Otherwise, there's no unity. He says, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So there is truth, but there's also a way to speak truth. Have you ever been told the truth in an unloving way? Was, there's no need for that. There's no, there's no edifying or building up in that. May we speak the truth with love in our hearts. And we're to be building up into him who is the head, into Christ. The flow of thought he's given as the Holy Spirit or, and Jesus instituted these leadership positions. He did all this work to build it up. And it's our personal responsibility to be growing in that. The Holy Spirit aided and Jesus aided the development of the church. And if he did so much work to do that, what about personally? Am I, are you growing up in every way into him who is the head? We have an intense responsibility. We should be doing our part to grow up and to grow for the church. So whether this is speaking specifically only about the early church or even about things today, they both apply. The leadership of the church today should be edifying the members to then build one another up, that we should do the work. And we should not be carried about because we have no excuse now. Because we have the completed word of God. Where are you at in your Christian stages of maturity? Are you a child? Are you an infant? And there's a time for each one of those stages. But have you stayed in one of those stages too long? If you are a boy or a child or a, or a young girl, how long have you been there? That's the question. And I'll refer you back to the survey we took in January. It's now been nine months ago, nine complete months since we took that survey. And my question will be, maybe if you have that still, as, as a high school teacher, what I would do is I would say, okay, pull those back out. We're going to do that self-assessment again and see if there's growth. I don't expect you to have that in your Bible still, but hopefully you have it somewhere at home that you can go back nine months after we did this original self-assessment and you can see, did I grow? In nine months, in 360, that's not the right number math. In all that time, did I grow? In prayer, do I pray God's word back to him? His plans and his will. Do I leave my time of prayer with peace? Am I constantly in prayer? Do I carry responsibility in the congregation? 
Do I share accountability with someone in the congregation? Do I discuss and study the Bible with someone else in the congregation? Do I serve others by identifying ways I can help and actively seek opportunities to use them? Do I, give, uh, do I serve and give benevolence in the contribution, cheerfully and generously? Do I show benevolence in my personal life and in general? Do I step out of my comfort zone for God's work? Am I actively befriending people who are lost? Am I working spiritual matters into conversation, having patience with others, patience with yourself, perseverance? Am I rejoicing publicly and alone? Am I finding new ways to grow even if it doesn't come from a source I want to hear it from? I encourage you to revisit that survey. Revisit your own self-assessment of where you're at. Nine long months from last time we took it. Are you growing in every way? Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together Hold on, I missed a point. Let's go back one second. As we think about the growth we are supposed to have, I think about the, the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where it said, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. There was a flaw with this visual if you're taking it spiritually, because at some point, the human body starts to decay, and you go backwards. But spiritually, that should not happen. Paul says, the, in, the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I, we have older folks in here that are an example of this. We have an older, a group of older folks in here that are wonderful. And they continue to be renewed and show what it looks like to be renewed in their faith. Because no matter what happens to the body... No matter what happens to your, your flesh or even maybe the, the circumstances in your life, you can continue to be renewed day by day. I, as I thought of this, I thought of this brother in Peru. Uh, he's an older man. He's hunched over, walking uh, one day to services. This guy rides his bike. That was to a different congregation because we were visiting, but normally he rides his bike about, I think it was 10 miles one way to church in the morning. He lives in the Andes Mountains, some 10,000 feet up. The inward man can be broken down, destroyed, discouraged. But God's word and God's ways should be renewing us day by day to where there's no, there's no downslope as a Christian when you get older. It should continue to grow as we get old. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There it is again. Not so that the preacher or the elder can do all the work for the congregation, but so that the body can have all of its pieces doing the work. And you might say, you know what? I'm not very strong. I'm not very sturdy. You wouldn't think of me as one who's going to build up this body. Sometimes something strong and sturdy and hard cannot work properly without a joint. Think about a bone. A bone can be as strong and sturdy and unbreakable as you could want. But you put two bones together without a joint, without cartilage, and without the proper fittings, you get no function out of your body. That's what happens when you gotta have to have surgery. If, you're, if you get a torn meniscus, man, that hurts. That's just a little piece of cartilage in that joint. 
Bone on bone does not work too well. Every joint equips the church. And if every joint is working properly, the body will grow. It doesn't say you need to be a different body part. We covered that in other studies in 1 Corinthians. You don't need to be a different body part. But you need to be equipped for the work you can do. Otherwise, this body will not function properly. And it won't build itself up the way it can. Value what you offer because God does and because this congregation values what you offer. One man said, some people think of the church as a pyramid with the pastor or the preacher at the top. Others think of the church as a bus driven by the pastor or the preacher who takes his passive passengers where they should go. God wants us to see the church as a body where every part does its share. Verse 17 of Ephesians 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. That's a lot of boldness. I testify this in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So he's talking about calling us to a worthy walk. He's, called us, he's told us what he's done to build us up as a church and how we have a responsibility to do our job. And he's saying some things that we have to do to clean up our walk. To live a worthy walk, the first thing is we cannot walk like the rest of the world. The Gentiles, uh, there's Jew and Gentiles. You're either God's people or you weren't. He says, don't walk like people who are not God's people. And the reason is, it's futility. In Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is empty. It's futile. There's no point in this life. It doesn't mean people can't do good things in the world, but ultimately, it's futile. It's empty. Especially when sin is rooted. Because when you and I rely on our own minds and our own feelings and, and desires to what to do, it's empty. It's futile. It's pointless. We should no longer walk in the futility of their minds. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. We talked earlier about what it means to be enlightened. It just means to have the true reality brightened up so you can see what's there. As Christians, we want to see the true reality of our hope and of our faith. We need to see evil for what evil truly is. We need to see good for what good is and rejoice in good and, and be disappointed by evil. Because the people who are stuck in that, they're darkened. Those people are walking around blindfolded. Walking in a world of illusion with a blindfold, one man called it. They're darkened in their understanding. And sometimes we can think of it like, man, those people have, in different points in my life, I wish I could just, whatever. This seems like they have everything. The Bible says they're alienated. They're strangers from the life of God. That's a scary line. Alienated, separated, strangers from the life that God has to offer. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart. You know, there's two different types of ignorance. And I think one is much less common than the other. There's ignorance that just says, I don't know it, something. And that's, I think, a very small portion of our world. And although atheists and others might try to challenge your faith and say, there's so many people who don't know anything about the word of God. This, just, this type of ignorance makes me excited to see what God can do. I've heard of some amazing stories where people were not thought to have ever heard the gospel before in some far out countries and they had heard about the gospel. So we never really know how ignorant people are. God can handle that. 
God can take care of that and we can do our part in getting the gospel there. But I think the more common ignorance, the ignorance he's pulling out here, is an ignorance that is willingness. And it's a hardness of heart that we choose. That when we will reject truth, that when people reject truth, they will have a hardened heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It is amazing to me how our bodies work. Our bodies will adjust to anything, it seems like. If you do hard work and it would mess you up to have hands that are soft, your body makes harder skin. It's, that, it's, it's amazing what our body will do. The callous' per, uh, purpose is to block out things that are going to hurt the body. You're, if you're not going to use your conscience, if people aren't going to use their conscience, it's going to develop a, a callous because there's no purpose for it. There's no purpose for having a conscience if you're not going to use it. If you tell your body or if you tell your mind, I'm not going to follow that conscience, God has given us a conscience that would say, okay, if you're not going to use it, then it's not going to hurt anymore. Are there areas, even if it's not a general callous across everything you believe in, are there areas in your life, in my life, that we have a callous spot? That we would think, oh, that doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. I would encourage us to have surgeon's hands when it comes to our conscience. Because a surgeon's hands, our surgeon needs every kind of dexterity. They have softer hands because they need to be able to, to manipulate their tools in a very precise way. And as Christians, we should be sensitive in our conscience that we would be quick to respond to something that is brought to our attention. That God would direct us in through his word and the Holy Spirit to prick our hearts. That we'd be quick to respond and not be calloused. May we avoid a sensual, a sensual lifestyle. Sensuality is living for pleasure. It could be easy, even if it's not in a specific sin, to live just for pleasure in general. There's a lot of ways that we could do that. And the things we watch, the things we think about, the things we give our time to, where we're just chasing the next pleasure, the next thing that will feel good to us. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learn Christ. That is not the way that you learn Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's going to continue to give us some put-offs and some put-ons. He says, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. He says, put off your old self. Sometimes people say things like, you need to love yourself just the way you are. And there's a whole conversation about that and what that does mean and doesn't mean. That's just a very broad statement. We should not love the parts of ourself that are against God's will. We should put that off and be ready to throw that into the past and to close the door on it. Because we have no place in that old life. He says your former manner of life, that is corrupt through deceitful desires. There's that phrase again, that deceitfulness. Of desires. Desires will trick our minds into thinking that something is good for us when it's really not. And that's the sad part about sin. You know, people sometimes fall into two camps. They're either, a lot of times people say things like, oh, there's just so much evil out there. There's no good. Everybody's evil. And they're all just terrible. And can be, we can be really cynical about that. And then on the other hand, there's people who say, man, there's so much good in the world. And and all these people, they have good intentions. They're not really in sin, are they? They have good intentions. 
And that's the problem with sin. It is deceitful. There, people aren't all bad. And yes, people have good intentions, but it doesn't mean they're not sinning. Paul says, I, would, I lived in all good conscience persecuting Christians. So we should be compassionate enough with people who are in sin that we would understand that they're, they're deceived. They don't see it. Sometimes we feel like, how can you not see this? It's because they don't. They don't see it at all. And be renewed into the spirit of your minds. We should be renewed as Christians. We should be built up day by day. A lot of times you ask people how they're doing, they say, same old, same old. As a Christian, we better hope it's not same old, same old. If it's same old, same old, something is wrong and broken. We should be made new in our minds and return to the source of our newness. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. Not in deception and, and uh, smoke and mirrors, but in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, there it is again, putting away that deceit, that falsehood, that fakeness. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. If the brain tells the, the hand that fire is not hot, the body is going to be damaged. We, uh, we are affected by one another. We have to be able to, teach, to tell truth with one another and to speak truth because we depend on one another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay, we're closing up here in just a minute, but uh, let's break down this verse. Be angry and do not sin. The first thing to do in dealing with anger, he says, is to handle it without sinning. So he's affirming the emotion of anger. The Bible gives us plenty of examples where God was angry with the children of Israel. Anger is an emotion, and every emotion has a purpose. But it does not have a place in our life always. Every emotion has a purpose. And the purpose, or the first thing we should do with anger, is to contain it. Anger you might describe as a fire. And I think, I think anger as a fire works in a lot of these analogies. The first thing is to be angry, but kind of draw a boundary as to where you're not going to go. And then when you're fighting fires, what they'll do is they'll dig out a fire line to where the fire has no fuel there. The fire will not go outside of that. If you go out to the woods and just start spraying on a fire, the fire is going to go the other way and you will get no more containment. You have to first draw a line around that fire that says you're not going to go anywhere outside of here. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to set our minds and to handle our anger in a way that first makes sure we don't sin. That we don't lash out with vengeance or violence. Violence physically or emotionally or reputationally. Reputation violence is a huge uh, response to anger. It, but anger can also be a very positive motivator. He says be angry because there's a place for the motivation it gives you. Because if conflict is difficult, for some people it's more difficult than others. Some people are very conflict averse. Some people are really comfortable with it. As Christians, we shouldn't be overly anxious to have conflict. But we need to use anger when it needs to bring a conflict to pass that we would address an issue. That when there's some wrong being done, that when there's something that would anger us, that we would address it. So it has a purpose. He says, use that. But it can't spill over into gossip, backbiting, or violence. 
The second thing he says to do is to not let the sun go down on your anger. There's the old phrase, don't go to bed angry. And there's actually some, uh, some science behind that. They did a study recently uh, where it showed that they took a bunch of men and they, anyway, I won't go through the whole study. But they basically proved that if you go to sleep angry, you wake up the next morning, it is more difficult to get the negative images out of your head. Before sleep, you, it's, it's like you can, you can move past them easier. They do brain scans as to where the, the, uh, the stimulus is going on the brain scan. And this brain scan will move depending on what's happening in your own emotion. It's kind of fascinating. But anger sends adrenaline through our bodies and it clouds the prefrontal cortex, which is the decision-making part of your brain. And that can make it hard to make good decisions. That's why he says, first of all, Watch out that you don't sin because it's going to cloud your vision, cloud your decision-making skills. And if you let it sit in your mind during rest, your brain goes through a process of kind of sorting out everything that's happened in the day. It sorts out your memories in the short-term, long-term, and it deals with things. It's a place of rest, but chemically that's what's happening. And they prove that it starts to disperse into the whole cortex if you just let it sit in your mind. So he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Maybe more practically speaking, handle something when you're angry. If you just let it stew and sit, things don't get done. It was a pointless emotion. But if you let that anger drive you to have a conversation that needs to happen, to address an issue that needs to happen, that's productive and that's useful. But then work through it because you have to go to sleep sometimes. So we have to work through it. Once that fire is contained, then we work on putting that fire out. And maybe that's the hardest part, is figuring out how do I get this anger out of my mind and out of my body? And there's a lot of things that could be said about this. Maybe you have all your own tricks, strategies for getting through it. But number one, we know it's never going to be about explaining why you're wrong to feel that way. You, you're not going to be less angry for someone to tell you why you shouldn't be angry or by telling yourself, I shouldn't be angry about this because we, we can get worked up about any number of things. I can get worked up on the road driving. Of all things, you're, you're just going to work. You're going to get there maybe 10 seconds slower. There's no reason for us to get angry driving. But then there's always, well, this happened and this happened. Okay. You can always explain why you might feel angry. So the answer is not to explain why it's wrong, but we have to have another reality that supersedes our own perspective on something. And here's the perfect one. It's later on in this chapter where he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Matthew 18, verse 23, it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. But when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all they had and payment to be made. So this servant owed an amazing, a massive debt. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you all that I owe. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. The same thing he said to the person he owed money to, but he refused 
and put him in prison, that he should pay everything he owed. This helps reset my perspective. I might be angry with somebody or something that happened, but when I look at what God has forgiven me in light of this analogy, this passage, my anger in that problem just shrinks. It just kind of dissolves. Because it might be, it's there, it's there, but it's much smaller. When I look at what God has done for me, when I look at, this is me right here, this is my place. That's what I'm guilty of. We sing songs that say things like, Oh, to see my name written in the wounds. For your suffering, I am free. There's a song that talks about, Can he still feel the nails every time I fail? That's why he was crucified. The song, My Crown, it was my sin. It was my crown, my robe, my cross that put the Savior there. It was my sin that drew God's wrath he bore for me. I could have never had a life with him eternal. It is my sin. So it's not always the anger that's wrong. But it needs to be much smaller in comparison with the reality we deal with. This third thing he says in that verse is, and give no opportunity to the devil. We have to realize that anger can be a wedge with a very small point where the devil can start to work his way in and give a place for a lot of other things to happen. So may we not give him a place. We have to identify who the real enemy is. We've talked a lot about deceit. Anger can be blinding. And we have to be watchful so that we don't misidentify the enemy. If I'm mad at any number of people in this room, well, let's say, let's say I'm mad at someone. I cannot let them become the enemy. They are not the enemy. I may have a conflict with them that we have to work through, but they are not the enemy. The enemy is the one who's trying to split us up, to cause division, to cause anger that would uh, create a wedge in our lives. And we must defend ourselves in case something in, in our anger could enter into our heart that would be sinful and cause damage. So three things, contain the fire, work on putting out the fire, and focus on identifying and defending against who the real enemy is. If we are ever at odds with someone and we don't have their best interest at heart, that's the root of sin. Whether it's violence, whether that's tearing down the reputation, that is a sinful attitude. Verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Thieves can be very frustrating, but I feel bad for thieves, because it's most of the time it's thieves who are poor and who do not have anything. And I love the word of God because it always gives us a why. The thief who doesn't maybe have enough to survive or to live on, he's given the instruction to turn that into his why, to his or her reason or why for why they work hard, that they will have something to give to someone else who's impoverished. God's basically saying, I get it, you're in a hard spot, but turn that into motivation to help somebody else who's in your same place by working with your hands. Now, we think of theft like stealing something off the shelf, but there's also white-collar theft. Four, or 90% of all significant theft losses come from employees. That is a scary number. These are taken from the U.S. Uh, Department of Commerce. 4.5 hours of time theft per, uh, per employee per week is what the national average is. 
That's things like being on your phone at work when you should be getting something done. That's things like clocking in uh, at a time where you're not really in work, different things. But in my uh, business ethics class I took, it was billions and billions of dollars. They say $50 billion in theft comes from their own employees. Time theft is a massive issue. So maybe you don't steal things off a shelf, but are you a trustworthy and reliable and honest employee? One of four people admit to lying on their time cards. There's white collar lies. There's not a, I guarantee not one in four people steal things off shelves, but there's theft in other ways. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. No corrupting talk. But only such as is good for building up as is fits the occasion. So our job again is to edify one another and we have to have a little tact. We need to be very intentional as to what our goals are is to build others up with our communication. And we have to be very skillful and tactful as is fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We're almost done here. The only time I remember my parents being really grieved, just like flustered and like, ugh, is when we were arguing too much and just kept fighting with each other for no reason. Move on. It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit, I believe. He has given us so much and has done so much to build this church and to develop us as Christians. May we not be ones to tear it down when we're just fighting amounts to each other for no good reason. Because he has sealed us for the day of redemption. It hurts the Holy Spirit and grieves the Holy Spirit when that is present, when that division and anger is present that divides. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. If we are contrary to the well-being or best interests of others, that is a selfish attitude. We may disagree with somebody or want to go against what they have in mind, but if we are trying to go against their best interest, that is a sinful attitude. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. There is the perspective for everything he asks of us. He's already done it himself. Today, that's the, that's the study. If you are a member of this body, it is a wonderful thing, and it should be. If you're not a member, you can be added today. After hearing the word, repenting of your past life, changing, you can, and you believe in the Son of God, you repent of your past life, confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you can be baptized and added to the church for the remission of your sins. We had a new brother, Chris. We're so excited to have him. As a member here, as a member of the family of God, you can do that too today. You don't have to be voted in and all this stuff. You can, you can do that today if you're ready. And if you're a member of this, uh, the body already, you can, you can come forward if you have something you need uh, prayers for, if it's a public sin or something you need support in. We can take care of either thing while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.